Welcome to the Manor. Welcome back to the Twin Terrors, Macabre Manor of Mead, Metal, and Mayhem. I'm Jody. And I'm James. All right. I was going to say Seamus, didn't you? Uh, no. <laughs> well, ha. Then I didn't fool you. Ha, <laughs> ha. Ah. What are we doing today? Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> never mind. Uh, uh, we're going to do that. <laughs> What are we going to do today, you ask? <laughs> I did ask, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, today on this episode, uh, we are going to delve some more into Deep Purple. We're going to delve deep like dwarves? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, no, not dwarves. Well, okay, I don't know. I guess we <laughs> like dwarves. Uh, could be like dwarves. Anyway, let's deep delve into deep purple. Yes. Okay, so uh, when last we left off, um, Deep Purple had just completed their second tour of the United States in uh, 1969, at the end of May 1969, actually, and uh, had not quite released their third album yet because nobody actually had it ready to release except for the band. Record companies didn't get it out on time. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. They come back to England the first week of June, 1969. I believe literally June 1st, 1969 was when they come back. They come back to the UK. And by this time, three of the band members, uh, Richie Blackmore, guitarist, keyboard player John Lord, and drummer Ian Pace, had uh, decided they were going to go in a new direction. They were going to play heavier music. And they did not think that singer Rod Evans and bassist Nick Simper were up to the task. Yeah, they didn't think they were going to be heavy enough. They were more old school. Yeah. Richie Blackmore contacted a friend of his, Mick Underwood, who was the drummer for a band called Episode 6. Mick Underwood tells Richie Blackmore, his own singer for his band Episode 6, a guy named Ian Gillen, wasn't really happy with the way things were going in the band and had been talking about maybe going off and doing something else. So he gives Richie Blackmore Ian Gillen's contact information. And Ian Gillen was uh, really good friends with Episode 6's bass player, Roger Glover. Glover, Glover, Glover. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the guy who played in Lethal Weapon with Mel Gibson, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, no. So during this first week of June, Richie Blackmore and John Lord go check out an Episode 6 show and offer Ian Gillen the uh, position as singer of Deep Purple. And by the end of the week, he accepts, becomes Deep Purple's new singer. After some reticence, Roger Glover also accepts their offer to become their bass player. Apparently, from what I read, um, and I'm getting most of this from the uh, liner notes to the 25th anniversary edition of their album, In Rock, written by uh, Simon Robinson. And apparently, Ian was kind of pushing Roger to uh, check into this, you know, to, so to say, I guess. Because <laughs> <laughs> they hadn't really, uh, they didn't really offer it to him at first. They offered Ian Gillen the singing position, but they didn't really offer the bassist position to Roger Glover at first. But he took in some songs that he had been working on and showed them to John Lord and, and everything. And John Lord said, well, you know, he said, we've got this session booked and it would really help me out. We need a bass player. So he kind of did that and they talked and everything. And it wound up being for their next single. It was a song called Hallelujah. 
I'm not really familiar with this song. This is one that I've not really listened to, but I do have it. And I will play a little sample of it for you right now. So the new lineup uh, immediately starts rehearsing and working on new material. But wait! Dun, dun. <laughs> For the rest of the month of June 1969 and through early July, Ian Gillen and Roger Glover also had to finish out contracted shows with episode six, while Deep Purple did the same with Rod Evans and Nick Semper, who did not know that they had been replaced. So they, they'd been recording with two new people. Yeah. While and, two other, and, and the other two were still in the band. Yes. They were uh, finishing out the dates they had scheduled in June and July of uh, 1969. Apparently, Nick Simper had heard a rumor, but he didn't believe it until it was officially announced in, in the press. <laughs> Poor bastard. Yeah, and apparently he was friends with Mick Underwood from episode six, and Mick Underwood apologized to him later. He said if he had known that it was going to wind up, you know, with him getting fired, he wouldn't have suggested it to, to Richie Blackmore that they check out Ian Gillen. But the thing was, Simper was already going to be out of the band. I mean, the, the other th- three had, you know, uh, Blackmore, Lord, and Pace had already decided that, so it really didn't matter. <laughs> Yeah, he was, he was out anyway. <laughs> he was going to be out anyway. Yeah, kinda, uh, I mean, it kind of sucks. Got, you know, he's out of Deep Purple, but at least he got the, he, he's been playing music the rest of his life. I mean, he's been in like a dozen different bands since then. Yeah, yeah, he's he's done quite a bit. Unlike Rod Evans, who pretty much for the most part disappeared. Yep, but, worked uh, in a medical field and then tried to tour under the Deep Purple name, got sued and had to give up <laughs> his rights. And like, I think you mentioned that last time and then went back to work in the medical field. <laughs> yep. In fact, yep. uh, I think that everybody from Deep Purple who's ever tried to get a hold of him has no idea what he's doing. He's probably yeah. ignoring them, and it's it's Bobby Caldwell is the only person who knows what's going on, and that was the, the – oh, I'm sorry. He did a Captain Beyond, too. Yeah, he's yeah, he did that Captain album. Also. Yeah. So he's in there for a couple of years, and Bobby Caldwell from Captain Beyond was the only one who's had any idea. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did read that. I couldn't remember the guy's name, but, yeah, I knew one of the guys that was in uh, Captain Beyond with him had said that because there were some people that didn't even think he was still alive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, apparently Rod Evans is still out there. He's just not making music anymore. Yeah. Um, Hope he's happy. Yeah. I, I mean, I, that, that came out snotty. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, I know, I know you didn't mean it that way. And yeah. Let's you know, I, But yeah, I'm, I'm sure he's, uh, well, I don't, I won't say I'm, I'm sure he's content, but you know, cause I mean, he's not getting any royalties off those deep purple songs. Yeah. 
anyway, Rod Evans and Nick Simper as part of the Mark One lineup, and that's that's something you'll notice with Deep Purple is that all their lineups are usually you know Mark something. The the Mark One lineup was the the, the previous episode on Deep Purple, and this new lineup uh, that we're talking about in this episode is the Mark Two lineup. Obviously, it's you know, going in order there. So the Mark One lineup played its last show on July fourth at a place called the Top Rank, uh, which is in Cardiff. And the Mark II lineup made uh, its live debut on July 10th at the Speakeasy in London. Uh, I want to touch on this real quick again before I move on. I think they're currently up to the Mark VIII lineup. (laughs) But most people, when they think of Deep Purple, they think of the Mark II lineup because that was the most successful lineup, I guess or the most popular. It, it was the one that recorded the most classic songs out of their repertoire. Ooh, that's a fancy word. It is. And we'll talk about some of those songs in this episode and the next episode. In the meantime, even though the uh, the Mark II lineup has made its debut, uh, Ian Gillen and Roger Glover still continued to play shows with episode six until the end of July. But this new lineup immediately started to get some positive press uh, or positive responses, at least, from the English fans. As the summer of 1969 goes on, the band rehearses and plays the occasional show. And by the end of August, new songs start to show up in the set. An example of this, on September 24th, they debuted a new song called Child in Time. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But the September 24th date was also significant for something else, because that was when they performed at the Royal Albert Hall with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. This was the Concerto for Group and Orchestra. The orchestra part was conducted by Malcolm Arnold. This was something that was pushed by the band's management, mostly for the PR, after John Lord had apparently made an offhand comment during a band meeting. It was composed by Lord and marked the first time a rock band performed live with a full orchestra. It garnered a lot of positive press, but some members of the band, uh, particularly Richie Blackmore, were not pleased with the concept. <laughs> Ian Gillen was also not thrilled, but several years later, he reevaluated it and had a change of heart regarding it. They did release an album, came out in December of 1969. And in addition, that night, they also performed, uh, like I said, Child in Time. Um, they performed the, a couple of songs from the Mark I lineup, Hush. And a song called Ring That Neck it was an instrumental was off of their second album. And if you've heard the first Deep Purple episode we did, after the outtakes, uh, there was a little bit of that tagged onto the end of it. And if so, you haven't listened to it, why the hell not? Yeah, right. What James said. <laughs> the Mark II lineup performed the concerto one more time in Los Angeles the following August of 1970. The score was lost after that. I've kind of wondered how it got lost. I would speculate and say that Richie Blackmore burned it, but that's just me making that up. I have no idea. (laughs) Um, I fell and broke this. It's not broke. Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) Several years later, in 1999, actually, it was recreated by John Lord and a fan who was a musicologist. They sat down and 
uh, I think with some computer software and, and the original recordings and they, they recreated the score and the band has performed it several more times since. Here's a little bit from the second movement. How shall I know when to start singing my song? What shall I do with the is believed to actually have influenced several other bands, especially hard rock and metal bands, who would go on to do the same thing. Metallica had their S&M concert, and I know Kiss did one too. They um, did one in Australia. Um, There's a ton of them out there, dozens. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I will say that in the case of both Metallica and Kiss, it was they took pre-existing songs by those bands and came up with orchestral arrangements to go with the band playing them in deep purple's case the three movements uh the, the first movement is kind of the orchestra versus the band and then in the second movement it's kind of you know they've beaten each other up and they're both kind of tired <laughs> and th and then the third movement was they learn how to work together <laughs> It was not the orchestra perform, performing Deep Purple songs with Deep Purple outside of the fact that John Lord wrote these songs. You know? <laughs> so anyway, that was the concerto. And I, sales-wise, I'm not sure how well this album really did. I, I know it, it generally gets overlooked. Uh, I, I've listened to it. I, I just listened to it the other day because um, I don't listen to it that much. And, and you know, the sample that we just put in, uh, I wanted to make sure I had something where the orchestra and the band were both playing and Ian Gillen was also singing because he sings very, very little in this. So you got lucky. You got to hear a part with him singing. So, <laughs> yay! <laughs> All right. So in the, uh, in the previous episode on the, on the Mark one lineup, uh, we mentioned the rock musical hair. Give me lots of hair, long, beautiful hair, shiny, <laughs> gleaming, steaming, flaxy, waxy. Give me down to there, hair shorter, length longer. I'm going to stop. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for you to stop me, and I'm like, he's not going to stop me. Now I'm just going to let you go. <laughs> so during October of 1969, Ian Gillen contributed vocals to Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's concept album slash rock opera. Do you know what it is? I'm actually not that good with Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's not Cats, because that's not rock. Nope. Wouldn't it be Joseph and the Dreamcoat, would it? Nope. Or Jesus, Jeebus Christ Jesus Superstar? Christ. 
Yes, Jesus Christ Superstar. That, that was um, the last one I could think of. Yeah, and, and Ian Gillen sang the part of Jesus uh, on the on the album. Oh. Now, it was an album before it became a stage production, before it became a film. And I've, I've seen a couple of different versions of the stage production. Here's a little sample of Ian Gillen from that album. Only want to say If there is a way Take this cup away from me For I don't want to taste its poison Feel it burn me I have changed I'm not as sure as when we started Then I was inspired Now I'm sad Listen, surely I've exceeded Expectations Tried for three years Seems like thirty could you ask as much from any other man? At the same time, Deep Purple started recording their fourth studio album. Sessions were squeezed in during concert dates in the UK. The first three albums had been produced by Derek Lawrence, but this time, Deep Purple decided to produce the album themselves. Uh, but they did bring in some recording engineers, one of which was a guy named Martin Birch. Dun, dun, dun. Ooh, I know who else he's worked with. Ooh, ooh. Yes. Who? No, not the who. <laughs> it's, sorry. Um, Maiden. Yes. Yes. He, uh, we mentioned him in the episode on Iron Maiden's uh, song, The Number of the Beast. Now, uh, he only engineered two songs on the album, but the band immediately felt um, a connection with him. And uh, Roger Glover said, uh, the chemistry between the band and Martin was instant. He felt like one of us. And his name is going to continue to come up. Uh, In addition to continuing to work with Deep Purple until they broke up in 1976, he would go on to produce albums by Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden. And I think White Snake. Uh, I did not look that up. And he he produced a lot of other bands, but those those are the three that we're probably going to talk about the most. Good, because that's who we like. Yeah, yeah. The fourth studio album, which I mentioned earlier, which they titled Deep Purple in Rock. <laughs> and their faces were like... <laughs> yeah, Rushmore. yeah, yeah. The, the album cover was a painting of uh, Mount Rushmore with their faces on it instead of uh, the four presidents on it. <laughs> which they had to... Uh, and actually, I've got the CD right in front of me. They had to put Ian Pace down kind of off to the side a little bit because they, you know, there's only four faces on Mount Rushmore and yeah. there's five members of deep purple but (laughs) (laughs) it was recorded uh, between october 1969 and april 1970 it contained seven songs all original compositions it was the first album they did that was all original compositions although the third album their self-titled album they only had one song that was a cover song now Um, this one this this album deep purple and rock it was also the first time all members were credited on all the songs right I believe so. Yeah, all of the um, the songs are credited to the the entire band. 
um, actually I had the vinyl out earlier and was just looking at it, but I put that back in the box, but yeah, all, all five bands, um, all five, all five bands, yeah, all five band members got, you know, songwriting credit for every song. And, uh, I'm just trying to remember how it was worded on the album. If it was, if it was just, you know, all, all songs written and arranged by deep purple or all songs written and arranged by, and then individual names. Uh, I looked this up the other day and I thought it was all like their actual names. So yeah, I think it is either their five names. Yeah. And I think, See, I think that was something that this lineup tended to do at this time. I kind of wondered why. I mean, did, did they just cohese better and, and get along a little better? or Well, <laughs> I, you know, to, a, to a degree of musicality. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I do think that everybody contributed something to practically every song. From what I read in the liner notes, it would be something like Richie Blackmore would say, you know, I've had this song in my head, play something like this. And Roger Glover would start playing it on bass. And then Richie would start doing something on guitar. And then Ian would sit there, Ian Gillen would sit there and go, oh, yeah. And he'd start writing lyrics down. And, you know, Ian Pace is coming up with his own drum part. Of course, John Lord, he'll contribute something. He may come up with, you know, some chord progression or something. So I think everybody was probably contributing a little bit. I do think that musically they were more on the same page than... Nick Simper and Rod Evans had been with everybody. So, but the songs, and I'm going to play snippets from uh, some of these, and I'll just tell you a little bit about the song. And if there's a snippet I'm going to drop in, I'm going to drop it in. Then I'll just kind of move on afterwards. Sounds good. Uh, the first song is called Speed King. That's, that starts the album off. And it's an ode to 50s rock and R&B. That is followed by a song called Bloodsucker, which is a personal favorite of mine. <laughs> now, how is she doing, by the way? <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> <laughs> is followed by the album's centerpiece, uh, the epic Child in Time, which we mentioned earlier, was uh, performed during the, uh, or at the same night as the concerto for group and orchestra. Child in Time seems to be a song about the Cold War, I guess, and the threat of nuclear war. So beating um, Ozzy's Killer of Giants to the punch by quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and almost middle. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. 
So that rounded out side one of the album or the original album or the original release of the album or something like that. You, you know what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I do. I don't know if anybody else does. <laughs> <laughs> side two of the, uh, the original vinyl album had uh, four songs, flight of the rat into the fire, uh, living wreck and hard loving man, which was dedicated to Martin Birch. This was why I had the vinyl copy pulled out a while back um, because I wanted to, I, I remembered they had said something about Martin Birch in the liner notes on that. They said for Martin Birch catalyst. And that goes back to how he fit in so well with them, the, the chemistry that he had with them, that they, they referred to him as the catalyst that kind of helped them along in this part. They did record three other songs that did not make the album. Um, or were not included on the album, I guess I should say. The first was a song called Black Knight. Here's a little bit of that. Night as a non-album sing- single. The other two songs um, were uh, Cry Free, which would be released in 1977 on a compilation album called Powerhouse, which also included the three songs performed the night of the concerto, but not part of the concerto. The third one was an instrumental called Jam Stew. All of this stuff would eventually be re- uh, released on the 25th anniversary CD in 1995. Deep Purple in Rock would be released in June 1970 in both the UK by EMI Records and in the US by Warner Brothers, who had bought out their contract from Tetragrammation, 
or tetra I always mispronounce that tetragrammaton <laughs> and if you remember at the end of the other episode I said that uh, tetragrammaton was in some pretty bad shape financially the release of the third album was held up I think partially because of financing and everything so Warner Brothers picked up the contract from that point on most of their stuff in the US would be released by Warner Brothers it would reach number four in the UK. Uh, remember, their first three albums didn't do very well in the UK, but Deep Purple and Rock shot up to the top of the charts, was a number four album in the UK. How'd it do in the US? Oh, well, hmm. I take it you've looked this number up. I have. <laughs> <laughs> Not so good compared to the first three albums that were relatively decent, you know, in the US. The, this album reached 143 on the US charts. <laughs> But the important thing is it hit number one in Australia and Germany. Yes. I mean, and it's sold like four and a half million copies worldwide over the years. So it's, it's done fairly well. It is, you know, as, as you've heard from the samples, it's a fairly heavy album. Um, <laughs> and I was trying to remember. I, I've back, you, know, you know why it's heavy? Uh, why? Because it's in rock. Ah, there you go. Boo! <laughs> <laughs> get off the stage! There Ooh. you go. There you go. So when I went back through the liner notes, I could not find this, but I swear I had read somewhere that when they were recording this, and it, it may not have been this one, it may have been one of the later albums, but I could have sworn that Roger Glover had said that when they were recording, the volume meter on the mixing board was consistently in the red. You don't typically want to get into the red too much because it'll distort not the way you want it yeah, to. Be all muddy. Yeah. Roger Glover had said that they, they pretty much were living in the red while they were recording it and yet still got a clear sound. <laughs> <laughs> go, go Martin. Woo. Yeah. Deep Purple in Rock marks a change in the band's fortunes, temporarily at least. While it was apparently largely ignored in the U.S., uh, the attempt to recreate the buzz from the concerto in Los Angeles at the Hollywood Bowl fell flat with American audiences uh, who had loved them the year earlier. The audiences at home in the U.K. and in Europe took hold of the album, and they began heavily touring in the U.K. and Europe. Fickle fucking Americans. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, that's okay. Deep Purple Sound was now much more focused around Richie Blackmore's guitar, and don't think he didn't see the correlation between that and their growing success. <laughs> so, since we're talking about Richie and his thoughts right now, um, you had mentioned in a previous episode about Brian May and had a quote from him for something else, but we can hold on to that. But I, I do have a nice quote from Brian May about uh, Richie Blackmore. Okay. And, and what he says now is his actual favorite guitar track uh, is, is, is uh, Since You've Been Gone when he was Rainbow, so quite a bit later. Oh, yeah. Um, but he, he says that, you know, people don't talk about Richie Blackmore enough. I don't know why. He was such a great trailblazer and technically incredible, unpredictable in every possible way. It's great. That's what you love, isn't it? You go to a gig, you want to see something which is not predictable, which is not like just reproducing. So you never knew what you're going to see when you went to see Purple when Blackmore was in it, but also Rainbow. Nice. Yeah, Brian May. And I will say about Brian May, you always hear guitars talk about how wonderfully awesome they are as guitars. Yes. You don't always hear them say they're nice guys, but almost every interview where they talk about Brian May, they say he's a great guitarist <laughs> and an incredibly oh, nice, nice guy. <laughs> I, I do like Brian May. He's, he's pretty good. But it wasn't just Richie Blackmore that was kind of getting on other band members' nerves. <laughs> the intense touring, uh, which no one in the band was used to, and Blackmore's attitude led to friction in the band 
fairly quickly, Ian Gillen turned to drinking, which didn't help. <laughs> oh, usually doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, according to Roger Glover, Ian seemed to go off the rails with attitude and drink problems. He and Richie were at complete loggerheads, and Ian may have got to the point where he thought, I'm the singer. If Richie can behave like that, so can I. So he became just as big an arsehole. Nice. <laughs> that worked out well. Yeah. The band managed to soldier through, though, although everyone was exhausted to some point. All right, so that does it for part one of the Deep Purple Merc Two. Hope you enjoyed it. And Yeah, like I did. Yeah. If you get the chance, check out both the Concerto for Group and Orchestra and the Deep Purple and Rock album. So we'll sign off for now. I'm Jody. And I'm James. See you next time. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> the Macabre Manor is brought to you by the Twin Terrors. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for some fun outtakes. And uh, literally, I just downloaded it from Amazon. Hold <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, oh, on. You're going to say that again. I got to go close my window. There's a okay. fucking helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> Go away. I do not have your drugs. <laughs> okay, sorry. Mine? Do what? Oh, you, you got mine? <laughs> yep, but you're going to have to wait till I shit them out. <laughs> uh, never mind. <laughs> and I have no idea what song I'm going to drop in there. <laughs> yeah, that's how it is. But, yeah, um, don't like it. your own damn podcast. <laughs> lazy bastards. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. Um, you you know why, right? Why? It's, it's because of Ian Gillen's masterful past with that wonderful band, Wainwright Gentleman. Yes. And his bandmate. I'm, I'm waiting for you to say it. <laughs> I just blanked. <laughs> Come on, man. Wasn't one of the guys from the suite, or was that one of the guys no, from the suite was in a band with somebody that had been in Wayne's, Wainwright's gentleman? Uh, it's, it's all of it, except this particular one was the guy who was in it, and I got to look it up. <laughs> <laughs>